You're listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Fellowship Baptist Church is located in Clark Lake, Michigan. Today we're very excited to have a special guest speaker with us. Now let's prepare our hearts as our special guest brings forth God's truth from His Word today. I've mentioned this to you before, and please forgive me for repeating myself, but I just firmly believe if I could take Fellowship Baptist Church around the country and have churches sing the way that you sing here, uh, I think that you would see a revival in America. I always look forward to the singing here. I look forward to watching Ben lead songs. I look forward to just spending time. It's never a far drive for Sue and for me to come here to Fellowship Baptist Church, and we are blessed uh, just with the encouragement. Now, of course, Pastor said that they... Uh, that you support us not only financially but also in prayer and if I had the choice between financial or prayer of course I'd choose financial you know me (laughs) no we appreciate your prayers more than you will ever know and the work that we do we are your missionaries uh, to that foreign field of Sodom and Gomorrah Sodom on the Grand River in Lansing Gomorrah on the Potomac in Washington DC and when you send missionaries, you'll have missionaries here, and they'll talk about the challenges of a foreign mission field. Well, when we go uh, to our foreign mission field, we have to learn a whole nother language and how to think in a whole nother way, because the foreign mission field of Washington, D.C. is the only place in the world where when they make a budget, they round it up to the nearest billion in case they forgot something. <laughs> kind of like we do with pastor's salary, right? Amen? <laughs> And then the other thing that they do is they just have this, I guess I would say, a hopeful delusion that every single piece of legislation that they pass is going to solve a problem. I believe, having done this for a number of years, that they labor under the law of unintended consequences, that every single problem they think they're going to solve, they will um, spin out four or five problems that, oh, they hadn't thought about that. And then the other thing that I've noticed on the foreign mission field is the language that they speak, whatever they name something, the result will be exactly the opposite. So when you see a piece of legislation that says the Affordable Health Care Act, that is three lies in one, in that it is not affordable, that has nothing to do with health, and there is no action. Uh, If you tried to ever get on their website, you can see how difficult that is. So what we have to have is when we go, we have to have patience because they don't operate on our time schedule. But we also have to have compassion because we do have very good and godly people that the Lord has placed in office for such a time as this. And realizing at the end of the day, we may not win everything that we think we're going to win, but at the end of the day, we have Jesus. Is that not enough? Have, have we not won in life by the fact that we have the Lord Jesus Christ and we know what our eternal destiny is? How blessed are we? Uh, just call attention to the table in the back. We mentioned it earlier, but Sue's book is back there. The book Stories and Stones is back there. And we are just blessed to be with you. And again, if you don't have one of our prayer cards, please take that and avail yourself of that. If you have your Bibles tonight, will you please turn with me? And out of respect to God's word, let's take a look at uh, Luke chapter... 19, or Luke chapter 20, verse 19, and out of respect to God's word, let's all stand together. Now we can do this here, I'd like us to do responsive reading, if that's good with you, 
I'm going to begin reading with verse 19. I'll read all the odd number verses, and I would like you to read the even number verses. You know, the amazing thing is when you take a look at the front of your King James Bible, it will say, if you have the King James Bible with the longer preface from the um, translation committee, one of the things it says, it is meant to be read in churches. We are supposed to read this out loud. This is God's word. So Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 19, Luke, the sacred historian, the physician, records these words. And the chief priests and the scribes, the same hour, sought to lay hands on him, for they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. Verse 20. And they watched him and sent forth spies, which had... Verse 21, and they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly. Neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. But he perceived their craftiness and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. And we'll stop our reading right there. Lord, we have come into your presence, and this is your word. This is not our word. We have been blessed to hear the reading of your word publicly. Lord, you have promised us that your word will not return unto you void. You have given us so many things in this world, and I ask that you would just help us now as we open your word. I pray that you would help us to be faithful with the text. I pray that you would help us to be faithful with the intent of the text. And I pray, Father, that our hearts would be tender to the point that we would be willing, we would be desirous to be obedient to your word. We would just thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The premise of our message tonight is, and it's a question... But how are we, as born-again believers, supposed to live and thrive in a culture that is primarily pagan? How are born-again believers supposed to thrive in a pagan culture? Did you ever think you and I would live to see a day where it was acceptable to graffiti and burn churches and it would be broadcast on the evening news? Did you ever think we would live in a day where they would destroy and loot businesses, shrug their shoulders and say, you have insurance, right? What's the big deal? Did you ever think we would live in a day where they would tear down the monuments? And why are they tearing down monuments to those who have gone on before us? Because the people who are depicted in that monument were not perfect. May I tell you something? You're looking at somebody who's not perfect. I have had a small fortune slip through my fingers. Do you know how many baseball cards I put in my bicycle spokes when I was a kid? (laughs) Do you know what those things would be worth if I had them today? Two weeks ago, Wayne Gretzky card, rookie card, sold for 1.25 million. A person could live on that if they're careful. Did you ever think we would live in a day where we live in anti-Christian America that those who are the elitists believe that they are Christians and moralists and they can make the rules for the rest of us to live by. Well, tonight, in the few moments that we have together, 
I'd like us to take a look as a Christian what our priorities are in rendering unto Caesar and unto God what is God's, what our posterity is, and what our prosperity is. What is the priority that we have when you hear the term, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, what comes to mind? What are we supposed to give Caesar? Taxes, tribute, taxes. We are supposed to pay our lawful taxes. We have a couple of CPAs and tax preparers in the church, and I've asked them, have you ever had somebody come during tax season and say, I want to pay as much in taxes as I possibly can? No. Our attitude is render unto Caesar what is Caesar and not a dime more. We're willing to pay our taxes. We're just not willing to make a donation to the government. We also obey Caesar's lawful laws. For example, when it comes to hunting and fishing regulations, it's legal to hunt with a bow for deer on November 14th. On November 15th, you can hunt with a firearm. It's not legal for us to bend the rules and sight in our rifles on November 14th or use a mag light stabilizer on our crossbows. We have to obey the lawful rules that our government has set before us. We're also supposed to obey the speed suggestions that are on the highways. <laughs> I had one police officer tell me one time that over nine, you're mine. So it's kind of, there's some leeway there. Now I would say this, if you get a speeding ticket on your way to church, I absolve you. That's a good thing to get a speeding ticket for. And as believers, we're supposed to vote. We are supposed to vote our conscience. We are supposed to vote our convictions as the word of God teaches us. We are supposed to vote to practice our citizenship. Do you realize how blessed we are to live in a country that allows us to vote? We are supposed to exercise our citizenship. I think that those would be our priorities in rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar. What's our priority in rendering unto God what is God's? Well, the Bible tells us that we are made in the image of God. When he says, show me the coin... He shows them that he sees the coin and he says, whose image is on there? Caesar, representative of the government. The government's image is on that coin. They own that coin. Therefore, give them what belongs to them. Whose image is on you? We are made in the image of God. So if we're made in the image of God, we need to render unto God what is God's. Our priority is this. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. You know, we live in a world that is constantly seeking, searching on a strain, trying to find things that will make them happy, that will make them content. And the Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. The Bible tells us, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. You and I are supposed to look in the mirror, and in looking in the mirror, we see the image of God. And it also is imperative upon us as we go through this world, as we go through society, we look at others and we see the image of God on their life. And we see a soul that Jesus Christ died for and we hand them a track. We give them a gospel witness. We give them a testimony that the Lord has given to us and we share the good news with them. Think about this. There was a time in the book of Daniel where it says in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat. 
He decided in his heart that first and foremost, no matter what society says, I'm not going to defile myself with the things that society has to offer. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Folks, you and I, our goal should be to have resurrection power. Do you realize when we hand someone a gospel tract, we are standing in front of the most powerful visual we could give in giving our testimony. Because when we hand someone a gospel tract, we are telling that person about someone who was crucified, buried, and on the third day he rose again. We stand in front of an empty tomb and we say, he is not here. Come see the place where the Lord lay. He is not here. He is risen as he said. Paul said that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. You and I should desire to have resurrection power. I don't want CNN power. I don't want Fox News power. I don't want Democratic power. I don't want to have Republican power. I want the power of his resurrection. I want to be that servant that the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to, to be. So we look in the mirror and we see the image of God on us and we are supposed to live up to that image. Paul tells us you are bought with a price and therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We have been given a blessing. Our priority is to live our life for the Lord Jesus Christ because his image is on us. Now as Christians, we have both a Bible and a constitution. So here in the state of Michigan, as soon as all of this happened and all of this started to take place last March, our governor started to make some executive orders <clears throat> and just went executive order after executive order. I think she ended up with around 190 executive orders. I'm not speaking evangelistically. I'm not preaching now. That's the truth. She had an amazing number of executive orders. One of her executive orders was on face masks, social distancing, <clears throat> and she had, did not allow for churches to meet. There was no exemption for worship services. And so as soon as we realized that in her executive orders, we're not supposed to meet and worship, I serve on the board of Salt and Light Global. It's a group of Christian attorneys who represent the biblical worldview in the marketplace of ideas. And they called me and said, we need to sue so that we can have worship services, would you be part of the lawsuit? Me personally, not Max. And I said, of course, I'd be honored to do that. So we sued the governor in order for us to have worship services. <clears throat> and our lawsuit hit the courts at 10 o'clock in the morning. And by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, she was rewriting her executive order to allow for worship services. The last thing she wanted was any of her decisions to go before the Supreme Court of Michigan because she loses when that happens. We've seen that before. The reason that I was part of that lawsuit is because the church is different than everything else that's out there. You can say amen to that. We're not a social club. We're not some sort of government agency. When you walk through those doors in the back, you cross a threshold between the secular that is out there and the sacred that is in here. Between the profane that is out there and the profound in every sense of the word that's in here. You cross a threshold between that which is 
common out there and that which is holy in here. And there was no provision for worship services. Planned Parenthood could stay open. Liquor stores could stay open. Lottery sales could stay open. But churches weren't supposed to meet. And so we wanted, biblically, to have worship services. Well, an amazing thing happened. The first, as soon as it hit the Detroit Free Press that I was part of the lawsuit against the governor, they Googled my name and found out that I worked for the Michigan Association of Christian Schools. And so the Detroit Free Press publishes Tim Schmig and the Michigan Association of Christian Schools sued the governor. And I thought, once again, fake news. But then I thought, well, there's probably dozens of people who saw that, so I'm not really worried about it. <laughs> and that was the first wave. And as soon as that got out there, I started to receive some emails who might look at the Detroit Free Press. And the first thing I noticed from those who were sending the emails, they have a very limited vocabulary. <laughs> the works of Shakespeare are safe with those people. Then the second set of emails were the things that were amazing because they, start, they weren't coming across the battlefield. They were shooting down the trench. My, our dear brethren started sending me emails. And one of them said, a couple of them said essentially the same thing. They said, how could you sue the governor? Don't you have Romans 13 in your Bible? Yes, I do. I do have Romans 13 in the Bible. Let's take a look at that together, all right? Now, when Paul wrote the, the letter of the Roman, Romans to the church that met in Aquila and Priscilla's house, he didn't give chapter divisions and verse divisions. That's a construct that came later. So I believe that the idea, the thought strain of Romans 13 actually begins in Romans chapter 12 and verse 21, which says, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Then verse 13, chapter 13, excuse me. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. Verse 4, for he is a minister of God to thee for good, but if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doth evil. Verse 5, wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. So Paul tells us that those who are over us, whether we're in an elected uh, representative republic or we live in some sort of tyranny, that those who are over us are ministers of God for our good. Where does Paul get the idea that those who serve over us are supposed to be for our good? I believe that comes from two areas. Let's take a look at Exodus chapter 18. We'll start there. I believe Paul is giving us the spirit of these verses. In Exodus chapter 18... This is 
the recollection of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, telling Moses, you're doing too much. You're taking too much upon yourself. And therefore, you need to appoint people under you who can serve to lighten the load that you have so that you don't burn yourself out. Verse 19, we'll pick up the context there. Jethro is speaking. He says, hearken now unto my counsel. This is Exodus 18, verse 19. And I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. And thou shalt teach them ordinances, laws, and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk and the work that they must do. Verse 21, here's the thought. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating socialism, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. What he's saying is rulers of thousands, that would be the federal government. Rulers of hundreds would be the state government. Rulers of fifties would be the county government. Rulers of tens would be your local and city government. And here's the qualifications. The first thing that they must have is they must fear God. That's a sharp dividing line. We live in a world where people either fear God or they don't. There's nobody who wavers on the fence there. And then they must be lovers of truth because truth hates error. Error runs from truth. And then they must be fair in their assessment of things. They must hate covetousness or socialism. Winston Churchill made this statement. He said, socialism is the philosophy of failure. The creed of ignorance, the gospel of envy. Its inherent virtue is in the equal sharing of misery. They must hate socialism. Margaret Thatcher said the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. They must hate it. They must honor the things that God honors. The second thing that I believe Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 13 comes from the words of David in 2 Samuel chapter 23. Let's take a look at that together. 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 1. Now these be the last words of David. If you have ever been in ICU or in hospice and you've heard somebody's last words. Whenever I want, I can hear the last thing my mother ever spoke to me. I can hear the tenor in her voice. I can hear the tender compassion. I can hear the love of a mother for her son. I can hear it. Pray it never leaves me. These be the last words of David. Now David's going to give his credentials and he's going to do it in Hebrew poetry in an ascending order. He says, David, the son of Jesse, you remember the story. Saul has disqualified himself as king for not killing the Amalekites like he was supposed to. Samuel had to go and tell Saul, God's done with you. 
And then the Lord says, now Samuel, I want you to go to the house of Jesse and I want you to anoint the next king of Israel, which when you think about it, that was sealing, as it were, Samuel's death sentence. If Saul found out about it, he would not only kill David, he would kill Samuel if he could. And he says, I want you to go to the house of Jesse. And so Samuel, thinking that the template for choosing the next king is he needs to be tall, he needs to be the eldest son, he needs to be like Saul. That's what happened the first time. So they bring in the sons of Jesse and they prayed each one of them in front of Samuel and every single time the Lord tells Samuel, that's not the one. That's not the one. And Samuel says, thinking to himself, what is going on? And the Lord has to say, don't look on the outward appearance. Man looks on the outward appearance, I look on the heart, I have not chosen any of them. And Samuel finally has to say, is there anybody else? Jesse says, well, we have one son, little ruddy boy, out tending the sheep. Bring him in. He's the man after God's own heart. He's the next king of Israel. David, the son of Jesse, the man who was raised up on high, who replaced King Saul, the first king of Israel. The man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob. I love the story of when they anoint the kings of Israel. They anoint Saul, and it says they bring a vial of oil, and they anoint Saul. They did just a little job. Samuel wants to get it right when it comes to David, and it says they anointed him with a horn of oil. Much more of God's blessing on this young man. The sweet psalmist of Israel. Folks, do you realize we hold in our hands the book of Psalms written by David, the king of Israel, the poet, the sweet psalmist of Israel. David who, as he is out on the pasture at night tending his sheep, he looks up at the stars and he says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. Then he says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? The son of man that thou visitest him? He gives all of these different psalms. He gives us Psalm 23. He's looking at his sheep as he's out on the pasture. And he says, that's a metaphor. I'm a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Many a dying man has entered eternity with the words of King David's Psalm 23 on their lips. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's just given us his credentials. Now he's going to give us what the Lord has told him. And look at the order. Look at how much he reinforces it. The first law of good teaching is repetition. The second law of good teaching is repetition. The third law of good teaching is repetition. And he is going to repeat over and over for our edification, I'm not saying this, God is saying this. Look what it says in verse 2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me once. His word was in my tongue twice. The God of Israel said three times, the rock of Israel spake to me. Okay, four times, David, you're not saying this. God is saying this. What is God saying? This is what he says. He that ruleth over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. Amen. They don't rule for their own pleasure. They don't rule for their own profit. They rule for the prosperity of honoring God in the things that they do. And the people will live under the blessing of the things that they do. There's blessing living under someone who honors God with the decrees and the things that they do. Romans chapter 13 says, He is a minister of God to thee for good or blessing. What I love is when 
someone says something that we don't really care for. And we want to comfort ourselves with the fact that, well, maybe they don't know. We'll say, consider the source. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 23 and consider the source. Four times God says, I'm saying this. This is how you need to have rulers over you. Psalm 72 says, give thy, give thy king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness to the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and the poor with judgment. So in America, you and I have both a Bible and a constitution. In Michigan, we have a Bible and a constitution. Both of them need to govern our lives. Both of them need to be the understanding wherewith we deal with our elected officials. Paul, the apostle, knew what his rights were. Remember, Saul of, Saul of Tarsus was on his way to Damascus, and en route to Damascus, God strikes him to the ground, and Saul asks the two most important questions any person can ask. Number one, who art thou, Lord? The two questions of life, who are you? And then secondly, what do you want me to do? And he's converted, and he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. And he tells us that as he's preaching, he ends up, and let's take a look at Acts chapter 16. What I love about Paul is whenever he was visiting a new town, the first place he went to was the jail because he knew he was going to end up there. Check that out first. His version of a Motel 6 or better. In Acts chapter 16, he and Silas are jailed. In verse 25, it says, And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. And Paul cried with a loud voice, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for a light and sprang in, and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. And brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them in the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. And when he was brought them into his house, he set meat before them, and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeant, saying, Let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told this saying to, Saul, the to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said unto them, listen to what he says, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison. And now they thrust us out privily, nay, verily. But let them come and fetch us out. And the sergeants told these words to the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. You and I, as believers, have a Bible and a constitution and a declaration of independence by which we as Americans have been blessed to be able to guide and direct our lives. I want you to think about those words that Thomas Jefferson gave us in the Declaration of Independence. In the original draft, which is in the Library of Congress, which is still available and still visible, 
Thomas Jefferson is writing and he comes to that sentence where he says, and we hold these truths to be, but his first draft says, sacred and undeniable. Think about that. In Jefferson's mind, our rights as an American are sacred. What's sacred? Who gives us sacred things? God. What God gives to us, can man take away? Should man try to take away? We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, as obvious as a sunrise in the morning, is what Jefferson is saying. Part of the drafting committee was Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin is looking at Thomas Jefferson's original draft. And in the drafting committee, Ben Franklin says, sacred and undeniable. Tom, that smacks of the pulpit. Could we say self-evident? Jefferson said, okay, say self-evident. But in Jefferson's mind, our rights as an American citizen are sacred, God-given, not coming from man. You want to see a contrast? The seculars try to point, and they try to make parallel the American Revolution and the French Revolution. They are two exactly opposite occurrences. One was a revolution to restore order. The other was a revolution to destroy order. And in the French Constitution that came out from the French Revolution, one of the things it says, your rights as a Frenchman come from the state. Thomas Jefferson says, your rights come from God. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by a governor's executive order that we can worship when she says. Is that what it says? Did I read that right? Am I missing something here? We hold these truths to be self-evident and, and that all men are created equal and endowed by a 5-4 Supreme Court ruling. Is that what it says? No. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Descartes says self-evident means clear and distinct. I was in Lansing one time calling on one of our state representatives. And I said to him, thanked him for the opportunity to talk to him. I said, before I go, as a representative of the Michigan Association of Christian Schools, as a representative of the churches who support us as missionaries, I'd like to pray with you in the work that you're doing here. He said, nope, no. I want you to pray, not in this office, the separation of church and state. How many of you have ever heard that, the separation of church and state? And what's happened to us in society is our society has done as much violence to the language as they have to the buildings. And that when they say the separation of church and state, what they really mean to talk about is the distinction between church and state. For example... If you or I were to be separated body from soul, what would happen to us when we say that? You're dead. You're gone. Separation of body from soul. But there is a distinction of body and soul. There is a distinction between church and state. For example, the church is not supposed to deliver mail. The church has no power to declare war. Those are aspects that our government has. The church has the power 
to carry the sword of God, which is the word of God, and go door to door by twos and to present the Lord Jesus Christ, him crucified, buried, and risen, and coming again, that is our distinction. There is a distinction between church and state. When he said, no, 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 the separation of church and state, what I wanted to say was, you're exactly right. We're the church, you're the state, leave us alone. But there's a distinction between church and state. One writer said, human history is a long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Now think about that. When they talk about separation of church and state, what they really mean is the separation of God from government. That's what they want. No Ten Commandments on the walls, no prayer in public facilities, none of that. Keep God out of it. One of the things that our founding fathers gave us is something that is called liberty of conscience, which means that we come here on Sunday, we open up our Bibles, we hear the faith, we absorb the faith, we give affirmation of the faith, and then we leave these walls and we go out and we live our faith in the community. And they have taken the principle of the, the doctrine, really, of liberty of conscience, and they've reworded it now to where they call it freedom or li- freedom to worship. And what they mean by that is this. You, Fellowship Baptist Church, have the freedom to say and believe anything you want within these four walls. But don't live your faith out in the public. If you're a cake baker, you have to do things that will violate your conscience. If you own a wedding chapel, you have to do things that violate your conscience. If you're a uh, t-shirt fundraiser, you have to print t-shirts for events that you may not be in favor of. And if you try to live your faith out in the community, be aware, be afraid. The Michigan Civil Rights Commission, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, will come after you for you living your faith in the public. And this is where we are today. So we've taken a look at what is our priority. Our priority is to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, give him the money that belongs to him, give unto God the things that belong to God, our conscience, our convictions, our time, our treasure, our talents, the things that God has given us. They belong as a gift, as a sacrifice of service back to him. Let's take a look secondly, being in Christian education. The second thing that we need to render unto God what is God's and unto Caesar what is Caesar's is our posterity, our children that are here. We are supposed to rear our children to be honorable citizens in this society that we live in. I would like to think that the rioters, the people that are out there, none, if any, graduated from a Christian school or a home school. They were reared to be responsible citizens. But our posterity, our children, are in heritage of the Lord. They've been loaned to us for a few short years, but ultimately they belong to God. Truth is one of the greatest gifts God ever gave to man, and the truth is simply this. Your children belong to God. They don't belong to the state. Sue and I both graduated from Rosemount Baptist Schools in Rosemount, Minnesota. Rosemount Baptist Schools was started by Dr. Ed Johnson, And over and over in chapel, if we heard the story once, we heard it enough that we got it. Rosemount Baptist Schools was started in spirit the day that Pastor Johnson's daughter, 
attended Rosemount High School, and she came home with a program, and she said, Daddy, the school's going to be doing this, and I'm supposed to be a part of it. And he looked at the program, he looked at what they were going to be doing, and he said, Honey, you're not going to be doing that. And he went in to see the administrator of the school, and he said, Now, I just want to let you know that you're entitled to do whatever you want to do while you're here at school. However, my daughter won't be participating in that program. And the administrator of the school looked at Dr. Ed Johnson and said, Pastor, you need to understand, when your daughter is at home, she belongs to you. But when she comes here to school, she belongs to us. And Dr. Johnson said, Rosemount Baptist Schools started in spirit that day because our children do not belong to the state. They don't belong to the government schools. They belong to the Lord, and you and I are supposed to bring our children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That's not a suggestion. That's an imperative from God. Our children belong to God. But we live in a society today where we have to constantly confront the lie that is out there that is being promoted and foisted on us. Here's the lie that the state wants us to teach our children. The lie says, when we face something dangerous in life, which we cannot see, can't control, which would cause us to fear, where do we turn? The answer, we turn to the government and trust them to tell us how to face our fears. They tell us to trust in the mask, trust in social distancing, of the magical six feet of separation from other dangerous people, and wait for us, the government, to produce the ultimate rescue, the vaccine, thus the government will save you. Talk about a willing suspension of disbelief. Do you know there's some things that you can only believe if you have a college education? Here's the truth that we must teach our children. When we face something in this life, in this fallen, dangerous, broken, disease-filled world, which we cannot see, can't control, which could cause us to fear, where do we turn? We turn to the Lord and to his providence, understanding that his word is ever true, his promises never fail. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. I want you to take a look at something. This morning, Pastor referenced the great hymn by Martin Luther, the Reformer. A mighty fortress is our God. Turn to 547 in your hymnal. I want you to see something here. Luther has an amazing experience. He's staying in the Wittenberg Castle at this time. He's giving his translation of the, German, of the Bible into German for the common man. And as he looks around the castle, he looks around the protection that he's got from the authorities that would kill him the same way they did John Hus a hundred years before him. He starts thinking about where he is in a castle surrounded by armed guards, a fortress, a, mo a moat in front of him, and he says, this is a metaphor for what God is to me. A mighty fortress is our God. Look at verse 3. I want you to read this with changing one word in it. See if it doesn't comfort our heart. And though this world, verse 3, with viruses filled, and though this world with viruses filled 
should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Do you know how many times in the Bible it says, fear not, do not fear, do not be afraid? 365. 365. And how many days are there in the year? So there's one for each day for us. Do not fear. If, if pastor told me something 365 times, he would realize, number one, I am a slow learner with a fat crayon. I need repetition over and over again. But eventually he would want me to get it, right? So if God, tells, if God tells us something once, we should get it, right? If he tells us something 365 times, do you think it might be applicable to our life? So, his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, the viruses that are out there, we tremble not for them. His rage we cannot endure, for his, his rage we cannot endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That little word for us is fear not. Don't be afraid. Live your life boldly. Think about this. We live in a world right now where people are deathly afraid of everything. Sue and I were in Washington, D.C. in September. It was like a ghost town. We went into Union Station when normally they'd be teeming with hundreds if not thousands of people. There were maybe 20 people, all homeless, all asking for money. And we would walk down the street, nearly barren, and somebody would see us walking towards them and they would walk across the street because they're deathly afraid of death. Can I ask you something? What do we have to be afraid of in death if we're born again? I had COVID-19, not to go all autobiographical on you, but as I sat in ICU that night, and I knew people who died of COVID-19, a good friend of mine, told his son, my lungs are on fire before he died. I thought about all the possibilities that could happen, and I thought, I've got nothing to fear. I've lived a good life. I've lived other people's bucket lists. God has given me more than I ever could have imagined. As a 14-year-old, unsaved boy going up to camp and meeting the Lord for the first time, I've gotten much better in life. I have won life's lottery, if there is such a thing. God has been good to me. I have nothing to fear. Fear not. God is faithful. He's good to us. His word is ever true. And because we live in a society today where the touchiest, most oversensitive, easily upset are now setting the standards for us, you and I as believers need to stand up and say, Fear not! God is still on his throne. Do you believe in the providence of God? Do you think God knew all about this? Did COVID-19 take him by surprise? Is he on his throne in heaven saying, oh, never thought of that? And yet, what does he tell us in his word? Greet one another with a holy kiss. Our Baptist version is greet one another with a holy handshake. But still, think about it. Break social distancing have human contact, live your life without fear. <laughs> so today we live in a culture of cliches. Wait for the vaccine, it'll save us. 
Man is perfectible. Every day and in every way, we are getting better and better. Do you believe that? Do you believe it personally? We had a wonderful little lady in our church named Vestal. Vestal was a World War II bride. When you saw her, she was five foot nothing. She weighed a hundred and nothing. And she was as sweet as the day is long. My prayer in life is to grow old and sweet like Vestal was. One day I said to her, Vestal, how are you doing? And she said, oh, everything hurts. And what doesn't hurt doesn't work. <laughs> That's what we have to look forward to. Other cliches that they have saved the planet, recycle. Man is perfectible. Today, public consensus passes for truth. Popular sentiment is what passes for truth today. And we have an obligation in this world to have our voice be heard in the public market square, whether it is in the newspaper, whether it is online, we need to speak up for the Lord Jesus Christ. We as Christians are not supposed to be the masters of government. We're not supposed to be the servants of government. We're the conscience of government. We speak the truth in love, but we speak the truth. So we've looked at that. I want us to briefly look at our prosperity, rendering unto God what is God and unto Caesar what is Caesar's. So briefly, let's take a look at this. Today, I'm not asking any of you to walk through the blood-soaked snow of Valley Forge like our forefathers and the heritage that we have in this country like they did. We want our country to prosper. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 7 says, And seek the peace of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. Pray for our state. Pray for our county. Pray for our governor. I have no animus against our governor. I have no animus against our attorney general. None against our lieutenant governor. I pray for them on a regular basis. Because we're commanded by God to pray for those that are in authority over us. Pray for their prosperity. Pray that they'll come to a knowledge of the truth. Pray that they will live and act and govern justly. Pray for, unto the Lord for it and for the peace thereof, for in the peace thereof thou shalt have peace. What is our prosperity towards God? Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. We read the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, and John gives us that amazing vision. The curtains are drawn back from heaven, and he talks about what heaven is going to look like when we get there. How wonderful and magnificent it is, and then it is in description, in the middle of his description of how beautiful heaven is, he stops to say, let me tell you who's not here. And then he says, but the fearful and the unbelieving they're not going to make it. He wants us to live our life with courage, with boldness. 
Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 9 says, Keep therefore the words of this covenant and do them that ye may prosper in all that ye do. I refuse to accept the premise that we are headed for a long, dark winter or future. The missionary William Carey said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. His promises have not dimmed in this book, and therefore our enthusiasm for life and for the things that he's given us shouldn't be dimmed as well. Colossians 3 and verse 23 says, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Paul says, I press towards the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Teddy Roosevelt One of our greatest presidents says, I have warmed both hands by the fire of life. I've lived life to the fullest. I've done everything that I believe I was called to do. Ecclesiastes says, whatever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. We live in such a way that we invest our life in things that are important. You know, it's one thing to waste a paycheck. We've all done it. It's another thing to waste your life in fear and trembling. Peter tells us, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Are we that person in our neighborhood, at work, wherever we might be, who give that testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ that it's all going to be good, God is still on his throne, he will take care of us. I want us to take a look together at the little book of 3 John, one of those doorstep epistles just before we get to the book of Jude and Revelation, 2 John, 3 John. We're supposed to prosper, prosper for the Lord Jesus Christ. 3 John, verse 1 says, The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest, what's the next word? Prosper. That thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. This is not name it and claim it. This is not blab it and grab it. This is you and I as believers are supposed to prosper in this world. And that prosperity is not just financial. There's things in this world much more important than our money. One of the books that changed my life in my outlook is the missionary biography of C.T. Studd. How many of you have ever heard of C.T. Studd? Wonderful biography. C.T. Studd was a famous cricket player, played on the Eton Nine in England. He advanced to the All England team, and they toured other countries that had cricket teams. They played in India. They played in South Africa. They got to Australia, and to live the life that C.T. Studd had, every single morning after a cricket match, he would pick up the newspaper and he would read his name in the paper and what he had done. He came from a wealthy family. A man invited his dad to hear D.L. Moody preach at a London-wide meeting that D.L. Moody had. And as they sat there, as the service started, 
It was a citywide meeting, and they invited one pastor to get up there and pray for the service, and he prayed one of those high flutin prayers. Our Father, which encompasseth eternity to eternity, and he went on waxing eloquent in that vein, and D.L. Moody had enough, and he stood up, went to the pulpit, and said, while our dear brother finishes his prayer, let's all turn to our, in our hymn books to this song, and let's sing this song. And C.T. Studd's dad was impressed with that, and afterward he talked to D.L. Moody, and he got saved. Started to live his life for the Lord. Look in the biography of C.T. Studd, you see the mansion that they lived in. As Studd was touring with the All England cricket team, they came to Australia, and his brother George came down with some kind of unspeakable disease that caused him to go into a coma. And C.T. Studd sat in that hospital infirmary room and he watched his brother hover between life and death and the thought that he had is what about George what is all of this wealth that we have going to do for George what is all this fame going to do for George and he was consumed with that thought and he came across a track written by an atheist and the track said this can you imagine such a thing, an atheist writing a tract? The tract says, an atheist's observations. Did I firmly believe, as millions say they do, that the knowledge and practice of religion in this life influences destiny in another? Religion, and in this period, they mean Christianity is what they're talking about. Christianity would mean to me everything. I would cast away earthly enjoyments as dross, earthly cares as follies, and earthly thoughts and feelings as vanity. Religion, Christianity, would be my first waking thought and the last image before sleep sank me into unconsciousness. I would labor in its cause alone. I would take thought for the morrow for eternity alone. I would esteem one soul gain for heaven worth a life of suffering. Earthly consequences should never stay my hand nor seal my lips. Earth, its joys and its griefs would occupy no moment of my thoughts. I would strive to look upon eternity alone and upon the immortal souls around me, soon to be everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable. I would go forth to the world and preach to them in season and out of season, and my text would be, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And C.T. Studd turned his life around at that time, surrendered his life to serve the Lord, and I love in the biography, it shows C.T. Studd in Africa, a little fire, a little pot. He gave his life to the Lord because his image was in the image of God, not in the image of Caesar. Caesar can have all of your money. Caesar can have all of the things that this world has to offer. But our souls, our life belong to God. And one day we will stand before God and give an account of what we've done with the image that he stamped on our life. What did we do as far as returning? As giving back to the Lord what belongs to him. The poet put it this way. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he shows me his plan for me, the plan of my life as it could have been had he had his way and I see. How I blocked him here and I checked him there and I would not yield my will. Will there be grief in my Savior's eyes? Grief, though he loves me still, he would have me rich. And I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace, while memory runs like a hunted thing down paths I cannot retrace. Then my desolate heart will well nigh break with tears that I cannot shed. 
I'll cover my face in my empty hands. I'll bow my uncrowned head. Lord, of the years that are left to me, I yield them to thy plan. Take me, make me to the pattern thou hast planned. This pattern's right here in the scripture. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and unto God what is God's. His image has been stamped upon you. Have you given back to him what rightfully belongs to him, which is your life? Let's pray together tonight. You have been listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this message was a blessing and encouragement to you. If you would like more messages, visit our website at fbcclarklake.org, where all of our messages can be downloaded for free. Also, you can subscribe to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. All of our messages are available for free. If you want to keep up to date on what's going on at Fellowship, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, where you can see what's happening at Fellowship Baptist Church. If you'd like to visit us, Fellowship Baptist Church is located at 3200 Reed Road, Clark Lake, Michigan. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you back here again next time.